Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. This is a podcast about connecting communities and people to research and science so that we can make sustainable global changes. In this episode, we are celebrating World TB Day. This year's campaign is Yes, We Can End TB. And it's all about solidarity and collective action. It centers on the increased engagement of those affected by TB, communities and civil society that are leading the movement towards ending this disease. We have Samara Barnes with us, who we're going to meet in a moment, who has lived experience of TB in the UK. Our guests are researchers Toyosi Adeke and Jasper Nadoi from the Light Consortium at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Jasper is a Ugandan medical doctor with specialisms in health economics and health systems and policy research. And in the Light Consortium, she is contributing to generating evidence on gender-sensitive pathways and approaches for TB to increase the proportion of men in urban areas with TB who successfully complete screening and initiate treatment. Toyosi is also a medical doctor and public health expert who serves as a senior lecturer in the Department of Community Medicine and Primary Healthcare and is the research uptake manager at the Light Consortium where he manages and coordinates research activities and inputs across the consortia. This is a unique opportunity for cross-country researchers and advocates to discuss the similarities and differences between countries. So let's meet our co-host, Samara Barnes. Samara is the affected community co-lead of the organization UK Academics and Professionals to NTB. She was diagnosed with TB in late 2015 and later discovered that she was also drug resistant. She has been very active and has raised money for TB Alert, the UK's national TB charity, and has been part of their peer support program. She has also studied and written papers on the global disparities in TB treatment. She also works for the National Children's Charities and is a borough and county councillor. Sabara, welcome to the podcast. You are a very busy person. Tell us a bit about yourself and the journey that you have been on. Hi, Kim. Thank you. That was um, that was pretty much everything about me. I am really busy, but being an advocate for people who have had TB is really important to me. I think mainly because someone like me was never expected to get TB. It, it wasn't particularly prevalent in my area. I'd had um, the vaccine when I was younger, so everyone thought that there were no markers there for me to get TB. But, you know, I think the really key thing with this is that it can happen to anybody. What was really noticeable when I was diagnosed is that the right questions weren't asked. So it took a long time to get the diagnosis, which probably um, led to the fact that I was active and quite poorly by the time it was diagnosed. So I'm really keen in early diagnosis and raising awareness of what the symptoms are. So people, whoever they are, have that in their mind when they have conversations with the GP. That was a really long statement. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I've got a lot to say. <laughs> oh, not at all. So in 2015, was that when the diagnosis happened? It was right at the very, very back end of that year. And I'd been poorly for quite a long time. I'd seen the doctor on numerous occasions and I got significantly worse as the time went on. I was diagnosed with chest infections. I was diagnosed with asthma and it was actually only when they were further investigating asthma that they sent me for MRI scans and x-rays and they noticed that it was definitely not asthma. It took a lot of prodding and a lot of standing in doctors' waiting rooms asking for help to get that diagnosis. 
Okay. And then from 2015, you got your diagnosis and then underwent treatment for a period of time. I started the treatment early in the January. And actually the first part of that treatment regimen made me poorlier than having the TB. It was very harsh. I was sleeping for nearly 20 hours a day, struggling. I didn't eat. I lost 10 pounds in the first couple of weeks. It was really, really tough. And it made me realize that unless you have certain scaffolding around you and support that it's really difficult to keep on that regimen and can understand how people get poorlier and, and struggle taking the medication on a regular basis. So you've had your treatment and you're with us today. And how did you become an advocate after being treated? So TB Alert were the organization who offered me support when I first received my diagnosis because I didn't know anybody. I don't even think at that point there was much on Facebook in terms of support groups. They really helped me. And then I became PA supporter for them. I always knew that I wanted to do something else in terms of being an advocate for people with TB because I think it's so important. And especially during COVID and what happened during the pandemic, it felt like a lot of the successes we were having were being drawn back because it was no longer considered priority. Obviously, we were in, in unprecedented times, but... Nobody knew whether I should be isolating or not. No one knew whether I was clinically um, vulnerable or not. It just made me really realize that there's so much around TB that we still don't know. I mean, I'm saying this as a lay person. I'm sure the people that are on the calls know, know so much more. But as a, as a lay person, it felt like there was such a big gap. And I would like to do something to help raise awareness and plug that gap. Thank you very much for sharing that journey with us to help our listeners to understand Toyosi and Jasper, do you have some questions for Samara around her journey from being diagnosed to becoming an advocate? Thanks, Samara, for sharing your experience with us and for being an advocate for tuberculosis. I think one of the questions I have for you is something I have witnessed with uh, people who have had similar experiences, which is how were you able to communicate what you were going through and your experience with on TB with uh, friends and family members, did they really understand what you were going through? Did you get the support that was, that you felt was necessary? That's a really excellent question. And actually reflecting on that time is something that makes me want to be more of an advocate. My granddad actually died of TB. He died of TB before I was born. He thought he caused it when he was in the RAS in, in Borneo. And um, so for me and for my family, TB was a death sentence because that's all we knew. So when I had to tell my mom, and I'm going to be careful, I don't cry now. When I had to tell my mom on Christmas Eve that I had TB, um, it was a very, very difficult conversation that possibly led, for as far as we knew, there would be no more Christmases. The misconceptions around TB were a big part and having to explain as I was learning to people that in Britain, it's not a killer that it can be in other places, were really difficult conversations. And what I found um, quite upsetting as well is the stigma. A lot of people didn't come and visit me, even when I was no longer active. Um, people assumed that I should be in a sanitarium. People got quite cross when they were having to be tested because they spent time with me. Not everybody, you know, not at all. A lot, a lot of people were very supportive, but I was shocked at that. But I suppose we saw that in the pandemic, didn't we, at first with, with COVID, people getting quite angry. I definitely think there needs to be a change in understanding. I hope that answers that, Toyose. Yes, it does. Thank you very much. It's not a question. It's more of a comment about cross-learning from 
uh, low burden setting to a high burden setting as it is in, in Uganda, because we actually do have delays here as well. A patient might see different doctors for the cough and maybe start from a drugstore, just buy drugs because the control in pharmacies is not uh, as rigorous. So a patient will self-medicate on drugs and herbs. So it's just to highlight the parallels and when they do access the, the public healthcare system or the formal healthcare system, there are some delays there as well. So it's just to emphasize the cross-learning across both hyper settings and lower settings and, you know, the index of suspicion among healthcare workers and among patients themselves, that the knowledge of TB signs and symptoms and demanding for um, appropriate care for TB services. Just to set some more up, Toyosi, can you tell us a bit about the Light Consortium and what the aims are? And then, Samara, over to you to explore the connection between people like yourselves and research. The Light Consortium is an acronym for Leaving No One Behind, Transforming Gendered Pathways to Health for TB. It's a consortium that consists of five countries. Um, it's led by the UK. There's Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, and Malawi. What we aim at doing is ensuring that our research can highlight or bring forth evidence that can improve access uh, to TB care and prevention across these uh, countries. Over to you, Samara. You have two researchers here from different contexts who work in high TB prevalent areas. So please go ahead. The thing that I'm really interested about is the gender aspect. So of all of the types of inequalities around TB, I wasn't aware that there was a gendered inequality. So I'm really keen to hear a little bit more about that and to understand whether that's in all of the different locations that, that your consortium is working in or whether it's more prevalent in one country more than another. Yes, Samara. So yeah, you're right. Um, gender is not one of the really highlighted social determinants when it comes to TB. And um, the Stop TB Partnership has actually led a community rights and gender assessment. And this is bringing some of these salient elements out. So when we look at the global picture, TB is about 1.8 times the burden, 56% in men compared to about 33% in women. When we look at it globally, there is a discrepancy in terms of burden uh, and gender. Then when we also look at the mistb cases, we estimate that about two thirds of the mistb cases um, are among men. This is a really, really important area for us because each patient that you fail to identify and start treatment on type has the potential to spread this to so many people, people who are close and dear to them, their families, their workmates, their communities in which they live. It is very important that we identify the missed TB cases. When we look at the gender differences, women do face barriers in accessing the healthcare system. We, we cannot put that aside. But um, as light, we also want to look at men. Because when you look around at most gender responsive interventions that try to address gender, you know, they do focus on women. And we're not saying that a lot or enough has been done in that area. But as light, we really want to try to look at men and try to see how we can address the barriers that they face. If I could speak for Uganda, the Ugandan society is patriarchal in nature. So the responsibilities that a man has to face, you know, Sometimes you find that health seeking is not a priority. So in Uganda, we're trying to look at ways in which we can focus on the healthcare system and try to introduce 
an intervention or a solution to some of the challenges that make TB healthcare services inaccessible to men. I don't know if Tayosi wants to add something about Nigeria. Um, men oftentimes have responsibilities that preclude them from visiting hospitals or the doctors, and they end up going to patent medicine vendors and small drugstores uh, to just elevate the symptoms they face. Now, we know that tuberculosis is a social problem, a social disease, and it affects people who are more in the lower socioeconomic class in high burden areas, particularly. So these are people that are really burdened by economic factors and other social issues. And missing one day of work can further plunge them deeper into such economic crisis. So they don't even take that risk of assessing healthcare uh, because of the time they have to invest in that. What this does is that it propagates the transmission of the disease. And so what we're doing in the Light Consortium in Nigeria is to investigate and identify those barriers that, can, that hinders particularly men, women and children, of course, from assessing this care and trying to figure out solutions to them uh, through policymaking, because that's one of the aspects we found that is lacking. That's really interesting. Is there appetite from the governments in the countries that you're working in to do this piece of work and to make those significant health changes? actually speak for Nigeria, and I think it's similar across the other African countries that are in the consortium. In, uh, the TB research and programming is hugely donor-funded in Nigeria, yeah. and it is handled by our national tuberculosis program, which is a little different if it could be handled by, say, the primary healthcare agencies, which are more community-owned and more immersed in the community. So there are those challenges that exist uh, that we're currently trying to overcome. The government is interested in solving some of these problems. Only challenges that the finances are not adequate. So it depends hugely on donors to get this work done. Just to build on to what Tayosi has said, a lot of the TP work is donor funded. And what we're trying to do in Uganda with the healthcare systems, because we've just conducted a series of workshops with the healthcare workers to try to identify innovative solutions that can be implemented that are sustainable and that really address the barriers within the healthcare facility. We believe starting with the healthcare workers and finding out what challenges they think TB patients face and and involving them in the solution creation process will be very useful to overcoming the bottlenecks. It will improve sustainability. Um, so this co-creation process is one of the solutions that we're trying to employ in Uganda to try to overcome that bottleneck. And if I could just also add something about timing. The timing is right because we've just finished the community rights agenda assessment. So there is this advocacy to look at, you know, the gender differences and how we can introduce this solution. So uh, right now, the timing in Uganda is really, really good. So the solutions that we develop under light can really go into these available uptake streams. It's fascinating. That's really interesting. Thank you. I was just going to uh, build a little on what Jasper had mentioned concerning the co-creation of the solutions to these challenges or barriers that affect the TB burden in Nigeria. One of the things we've done across the countries involved in our consortium is a political economic analysis. What we know is that a lot of times 
we conduct research with the hope that it will translate into either policy or practice. But there is this huge gap and there's a huge duration before this actually happens. So what we have tried to do is to look at the political uh, sphere and the economic aspects that may contribute to this burden. We're trying to navigate around those and to solve those problems using research so that once we complete our research, we can well, quite quickly translate them into policies and that will now guide our practices. I think that's really good to kind of set us up to thinking about methods as well. So Jasper, you mentioned community rights agenda there, making sure that communities are part of the co-production process. Our listeners, they're familiar with Photo Voice, but how are you using Photo Voice in this project? And could you explain it for Samara, who might be new to this kind of method in research? Absolutely. I'd love to do that. Photo Voice is a visual research methodology where we use pictures to tell stories. Many times when you conduct research, they're just limited types of questions and things you can ask. But when you discuss with your community uh, and have them take pictures of, say, for example, barriers to accessing TB care and services in their community, they take the pictures that can then explain what those barriers are. It is so fascinating, the kind of information you get from these pictures. So the process is pretty simple. We have participants from the community guide them on how to take pictures, just the ethics of photography, especially photography and research, and provide them with some guide questions. And they go with the cameras, take a bunch of pictures of things that have interested them, things that they find are in line with what we have asked them to take, things that would normally not be able to relate to on paper. So they take those pictures uh, and then we review the pictures alongside the participants and they tell us what they were thinking when they took those photos. That now provides an avenue where we can either publish that or have an exhibition where the policymakers or people that have influence on those different aspects could be present and could also ask questions directly. It's been, it's a very effective methodology and we're currently implementing that in Nigeria right now. I absolutely love that, Toyosi. I think a lot of the time when we talk about research, we forget that there's people at the bottom of this research and really bringing it back to the individual. It's so important, especially when you're working with policymakers, because when you bring it back to people, they can see how the research can make lasting change. I didn't know that there was such a thing as photo voice, but when I was poorly, I recorded quite a lot of my journey by taking photos because I didn't really know what else to do. I was trapped in my house a lot. Um, so I took photos of the tablets that I was taking. When I got all sorts of funny rashes from allergies from the tablets, I recorded pictures of me cuddling the dog <laughs> because I was on my own. So I think actually this is the power of Facebook. It, it comes up every year. And so I can remember those times and I can share those times with other people as well. So I think it's extremely powerful. Did you share those photographs as you were taking them with family and friends or was that something that you preferred to have yourself? I didn't at first because I didn't know whether people would be interested but actually I thought that it was a good way to to let people in and see what it was really like. Interestingly from sharing those 
I've met other people who haven't lived too far away from me that have had TB since, and they knew to contact me because might have had a friend of a friend who saw those pictures and knew what I'd gone through and linked us up. Those photos has done a lot of good in connecting people and helping people understand the illness. I think it's great to hear, and we're always looking for creative ways of engaging people with lived experience so that we can communicate to policymakers that can be removed from the reality. So it's good to hear that you also enjoyed taking those photographs and it gave you a new mechanism to communicate. Jasper, in terms of connecting with communities in Uganda, what kind of methods are you using? I'm using two methods. One is some health facilities in Uganda have male champions. What we did in these sessions is that one set of participants developed the ideal healthcare pathway um, what should actually happen in the healthcare facility. And then the other steps um, develop the actual pathway. And from this, we got to see the hurdles because the group that developed the actual pathway did have the TB champions. So they got to tell us the challenges that they faced and the missed opportunities as they interfaced um, the healthcare facility. We got to use this to develop uh, barriers or challenges that they faced, you know, um, as they were seeking care and in their diagnosis and up till the time they initiated treatment. The second method that we used is called stepping stones. So we imagined a river and this river is filled with all these barriers and challenges that, that this patient had to overcome. And we had stepping stones that would enable a man with TB on one end to access TB care on the other end. So each stepping stone was a solution. Using this visual method, we're able to co-create solutions tailored to the barriers and challenges within this particular context in which we are working in and very specific to the healthcare facility. And the participants they were active and it was a session that was really, really beneficial in co-creation and developing solutions. Fantastic. Well, it's been a wonderful conversation. We always like to ask both our guests and our co-hosts one piece of advice that they think other people working in this area should take on board. So let's start with Toyosi. I think uh, the advice I have for both the researchers, advocates, and anybody working in this space is for us to learn a lot more about tuberculosis. I know today Samara has said she learned a few things and from her speaking, I've also learned a lot. So I think it's important for us to, to learn more about it. Uh, we already care about it. Uh, I think it's important for us to keep doing what we're doing and be as persistent as possible. And definitely we will be able to uh, overcome this. This headbase is really tailored to maybe a question that I came across a lot when I started looking at gender approaches for TB. The question was, why men, you know? And the solution is that we really need to engage men so that we can have healthier families and so that we can have healthier communities. So let's engage men, let's involve them, and let's make the TB care services that we have accessible to them. Samara, from an advocate's point of view, what would you recommend for researchers and then also for advocates? I think there's a couple of things, actually. I think it's really important to carry on having open conversations. I'd encourage people to be really curious and to just keep asking those, the difficult questions as well. I think being inventive with the research methodology is something that I've taken from this. I think the main thing for me is remembering that there are real people at the heart of this. We're not talking about numbers. We're talking about mums, dads, grandparents. I think that's key. 
I will echo that. Thank you to our guests. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Samara, for being a co-host. And thank you to our listeners, as always. Please do like, rate, share, and subscribe. Thank you to everyone, and bye for now.